to Debrief. I'm Megan Murphy, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. With each episode, we'll sit down with the world's leading business leaders, entrepreneurs, and political figures. It's a peek behind the scenes of global business, culture, and politics. A firsthand conversation with the people who shape the world's economy. If you don't feel smarter afterwards, then we aren't doing our job. In a time of rising populist fervent across so many Western democracies, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, has been referred to as the last Liberal standing. Elected as part of a landslide victory for his Liberal Party in 2015, the telegenic 45-year-old is the son of legendary former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau and a former school teacher who placed hope and optimism at the center of his campaign. His administration continues to embrace policies that divide voters elsewhere, such as taking in a greater number of refugees, legalizing marijuana, and hiking taxes on the wealthy. Bloomberg's editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite, recently sat down with the prime minister in Toronto to discuss his relationship with Donald Trump, his embrace of free trade, and why Canadians work so hard not to be defined as not American. Prime Minister Trudeau, um, welcome back to Bloomberg. Merci d'être avec nous. And that, you, many of you will be very relieved to hear, is the last French you will get from me. <laughs> Can we begin with trade? Um, the last time we spoke, you had Barack Obama in the White House. NAFTA was a, a thing of beauty. You were, you were partners. You still say that you're extremely pro-free trade, and Canada obviously relies on this a great deal. On Tuesday, um, Donald Trump went to Wisconsin and promised he would protect the dairy farmers against unfair trade, and he cited Canada in particular. And he also said, for good measure, we're going to get rid of NAFTA once and for all. I think this is your first chance to give your reaction to this constructive dialogue. Uh, (laughs) Would you like to take it away? Well, I think one of the fundamental things that Canada knows, Canadians know, uh, is that you know, trade uh, can be a tremendous driver of economic growth. Uh, one of the challenges that we've seen in the rise of sort of populist or nationalist politics uh, around the world over the past years is a reflection that trade hasn't always uh, been great for everyone. Uh, sometimes it has benefited uh, only the top tier of, of, of any economy, uh, certain multinationals, not uh, smaller businesses. Uh, and there is a generalized anxiety amongst Uh, significant uh, majorities in our populations across Western economies uh, that are anxious about their own economic well-being and their Mm. own future. And uh, worries about the other, worries about uh, foreign trade or foreign investment uh, are easy to point to as a challenge. The issue, however, is if you end up going down a highly protectionistic route, if you end up creating barriers and tariff walls and and what have you, uh, you end up slowing down economic growth and everyone ends up suffering, including and especially the middle class. So but in this, in what, this particular case, he's trying, to get this, rid of the, he's trying to get rid of the milk subsidies that you give to people, which this, make it more expensive for your middle class. In this particular case, as we, as we approach trade, it, we have to make the arguments for it. We have to reassure people that we're being fair and responsible about trade and that there is ways to include everyone in the benefits of trade, whether it's small and medium-sized businesses, whether it's agricultural producers, whether it's all that. 
Uh, and any conversation around that starts with recognizing the facts. Now, I understand uh, how certain governors you know, are speaking to certain constituencies on that. It's, it's politics. At the same time, the U.S. has a $400 million uh, dairy surplus with Canada. Uh, so it's not Canada that is the challenge here. Uh, and the way we approach our very constructive relationship uh, with the United States on trade and on other things is uh, to base both around the facts of the issues uh, and a shared desire to see uh, citizens on both of our sides of the border uh, succeed. We know that the trade, NAFTA, the free and open trade between Canada and the U.S. creates millions of good jobs on both sides of the border. So we're not going to overreact, we're going to lay out the facts, and we're going to have substantive conversations about how to improve uh, the benefits for citizens on both sides of our borders. On the, on the particular thing to do with milk, you, I think every, every Canadian family pays several hundred dollars more in terms of their annual milk bill because of the measures you have, surely as a protector of the middle class. On this one thing, you would admit that Donald Trump has a point. Let's not pretend we're in a global free market when it comes to agriculture. Mm. Every country uh, protects, for good reason, its agricultural industries. Uh, and you know, we have a supply management system that works very well here in Canada. Uh, the Americans choose, and other countries choose to subsidize to the tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, if not billions of dollars, their agricultural industries, including their dairy. Uh, different countries have different approaches, uh, and we're going to engage in a thoughtful, fact-based conversation on uh, how to move forward in a way that both protects our consumers and our agricultural producers. And in this thoughtful, fact-based discussion, Maybe we could look at NAFTA and that. Where, where do you kind of rate the danger to NAFTA? Because you, he came in making these big statements, and at the, this precise moment, it doesn't seem as if there is a, a way of getting rid of NAFTA, or there's less. One of the very first things that, that we did, uh, and this, this isn't unique to the, uh, this particular uh, administration, any incoming administration uh, needs to hear from Canada about just how important the Canadian-U.S. Uh, trade relationship is, uh, because it's often overlooked or taken for granted by American policymakers and lawmakers, is uh, we did a really good job of highlighting just how many good middle-class jobs on both sides of the border, but particularly in the United States, depend on uh, the free trade with Canada. So the argument we've made about trade being good for everyone, about uh, amplifying our success on either side of the border, the auto pact being a great example of that, where a given part can crisscross the border six times before ending up in a, uh, in a finished uh, automobile. We have a a relationship unlike just about anyone else in the world between two countries, and uh, a lot of that is based on mutually beneficial trade policies. Your, your ambassador in Washington said that he thought the border tax was, was, would never happen. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you think that's something which is now off the table? I, I'm, I'm not going to make any predictions about uh, what's going to come forward on, on the U.S. side, on policy mm -hmm. sides, but uh, I know that we have uh, made a very clear case that uh, adding taxes or a regulation uh, to a part crisscrossing six times, uh, the amount of bureaucratic red tape, the amount of layers of, of, uh, of impediments to jobs on either sides uh, would be really problematic. And I don't think that uh, 
people who are promoting that border tax within the American Congress uh, have fully thought through some of the consequences that uh, that might. But do you think this is an to... area where Trump may have overreached, and actually he's going back? That this is an area where he has no, you know, all hat and no cattle. To... I, I think, I think, the issue uh, facing President Trump is that he made a promise to do things that were good for the middle class and that he was going to help people who felt that they weren't part of uh, the economic success uh, of their country. And uh, killing jobs because of uh, thickening borders between Canada and the U.S. Uh, isn't something that, uh, that Mr. Trump is particularly interested in. Can I ask you about TPP, which seems strange, as you haven't said you want to continue with that, you haven't spoken out in favour of that, which sits oddly with your general pro-free trade stance. Is that something you think could be developed without America? We're, we're in favor of, of trade deals. We're in favor of progressive trade deals. Uh, when uh, we came to office, the Canada-EU uh, Canada deal, uh, CETA, was uh, in big trouble. Uh, it was basically stalled. A whole bunch of uh, significant... Uh, parties in and across Europe had decided that it was a bad thing. Uh, and we had to go back to the drawing board a little bit and uh, make it slightly more progressive uh, and you know, make tweaks to it that would reassure people that uh, there was still a capacity to protect workers, protect the environment, protect labor rights, protect health benefits, those kinds of things. Um, so we're always looking for good trade deals for Canada. Uh, I think as we you know, move forward in, in what seems to be a post-TPP world, we're very much interested in continuing to grow our relationships with Asia, look at, look at how, we can, how we can pull but things not, together. But not, but not through TPP itself. It might be separate. I, I know there's lots of discussions whether there's going to be a TPP minus the U.S., whether there's going to be different clusters or clumpings or more bilaterals. We're just happy to be engaged in these discussions because we know that trade will benefit both Canadians and our our trading partners. Can I ask you a little bit about um, Trump? You know, have you, have you, what have you learned about him so far? Um, I've learned that he, um, he listens. Uh, he he is, is a little bit unlike many politicians. Um, okay, I could, that I might be an Leave answer. that <laughs> sentence right there. <laughs> but in that, as politicians, we're very, very much trained uh, to you know, say something and stick with it. Uh, whereas he has shown that you know, if he says one thing and then actually hears good counterarguments or good reasons why he should shift his position, um, he will uh, take a different position if it's, if it's a better one, if the arguments win him over. And I think there's a, uh, there's a challenge in that for electors, but there's also a, an opportunity in that for people who engage with him to try and uh, work to achieve uh, a, a, you know, a beneficial, a beneficial outcome. Do you think, in a strange way, he's helped you define yourself more clearly? You're often cited as the kind of anti-Trump now because you you believe in this old liberal order. I think I can speak for all Canadians in the room where we work very hard to not be defined as being not American. Uh, we try to define ourselves on our terms uh, and, and saying, well, a Canadian is simply not an American is, uh, is an easy shortcut that Canadians don't approve but there is of a, anymore. But there is a point. If you look around the world now, you've got Trump who's taking a somewhat protectionist stance on things. You've got um, Prime Minister May in Britain talking about global citizens being something she doesn't believe in. 
Um, you increasingly look like the last liberal in some ways. That you, you are a liberal in the Anglo-Saxon world, word of, way of being pro-free trade, but also socially liberal. And that, that at the moment is not, it's not a popular place to be. Well, I think that Canadians have understood that openness to the world, drawing in on diversity, respecting each other's rights, looking for ways to work together rather than to antagonize each other is, uh, is what has made us successful and what has given us an incredibly stable, uh, stable society, stable economy, stable political situation uh, in a world that is, is under certain... But do you, ideologically, strains. do you feel as if you have any natural allies out there nowadays? Uh, I think there's an awful lot of people who are trying to solve the same challenge that I am, which is how do we make the middle class successful? Because ultimately an economy can only be strong in the 21st century if everyone feels like they have opportunities within it. And if you're seeing a rise of populism and nationalism, it is in response to the kinds of fears that people are feeling. So my economic approach is very much to allay those fears. Those seem to be... The, the, the approaches that a lot of people that you've, you've cited are also focused on. How are we going to help the little guy? How are we going to help people who feel left out of success? The, the policy toolboxes we choose to use might vary a little bit, but we can always find common ground. Do you have any idea why populism of that sort hasn't really taken off in Canada? Oh, you know, you've I think we French can just election. look at what some of the, the narratives... Um, are coming out of, of the, the leadership campaigns of, of the other two major parties. And you can see that there is uh, a strong drive towards populism, even, even in, or at least to, to use some of the, the populist tools. Uh, even in our election in, in 2015, uh, we made, I made a conscious choice to try to draw people together, to work on allaying fears rather than highlighting them and exacerbating them. Uh, but I was up against a government that ran on you know, snitch lines against Muslims and you know, headscarf bans and uh, a fear-filled narrative uh, that Canadians chose to reject for the large part uh, because there was a positive, inclusive, uh, solutions-based um, alternative on offer. And I think that which worked in Canada, can and should work elsewhere. I mean, Sadiq Khan, mayor of, uh, mayor of London, ran on a very similar platform six months after, after we won. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a openness out there for citizens to have people pull out the best on them rather than try to protect us from the worst within us. And I think that, that's a message that, uh, that people are beginning to get around the world. We look at that both in terms of economic policy at home and then abroad. On, on fiscal policy, you mentioned the election. And during the election, you, you said that you wanted to get rid of the deficit. And you talked about maybe having $25 billion worth of deficits before they disappeared. You know, this year, you're going to run a $28 billion one alone. What, what's changed? Is that... Well, I mean, if you actually want to do the math, we uh, committed to, or we, we talked about uh, uh, $10 billion worth of deficit in our, in our first, uh, in our then, first then year. Then. Uh, it became 30, uh, but there was still only about 10 or $11 billion worth of new spending, and it was the uh, economic situation that sort of fell out. And we had the question to ask ourselves, well, 
do we then stick with our plan of investing in infrastructure, in education, in research, uh, in putting more money in the pockets of the middle class because we think it's all the more important now that the economy's gotten a little worse than we expected? Or do we pull back and make cuts and not make those investments? And I think it was very clear in the election uh, that uh, our proposal to invest in infrastructure, in research, in Canadians again, uh, was not just what Canadians wanted and chose, but what was the right solution to move forward. And we're seeing positive signs in terms of employment numbers, in terms of growth, in terms of uh, global investment that we're drawing in. Maybe those positive signs. I think you have an economy that is due to grow by 2.6% this year, faster than anyone else in the G7, as you will doubtless point out to me. Isn't that that a chance, an opportunity in some ways, to return back to... To, to dealing with the deficit because you don't need a, a stimulus for that. We have the lowest debt-to-GDP ratio of anyone in the G7, in the OECD. Uh, we are uh, in extremely healthy situation, and we're doing well because we are back investing in the kinds of things that are making a difference in people's lives, whether it's public transit to get people from home to work uh, more reliably, whether it's investing for the first time in, in a long time, uh, $11 billion so that the federal government can re-engage in a national housing strategy to build affordable homes, which right here in Toronto is a, a particularly poignant challenge. Uh, we're engaging in childcare again because we know uh, that ensuring that there are childcare options is a great way of benefiting our workforce by allowing more women to succeed within the workforce. These are the kinds of things we're doing, not because you use the word stimulus, not because it's a stimulative effect, but because they're smart things to do both in the short term and for the long term in terms of pathways to growth that will be including the middle class. But do you, do you think that you've discovered infrastructure takes longer than you first thought? I mean, you've committed a lot to it, but it's, there hasn't been that much actual spending so far. Actually, we, we recognize that right away, that challenge of the fact that when you want to ramp up, there's big projects to, to, to determine, to, to establish, and we had that built in. That's why the first phase of uh, our infrastructure investments were much-needed upgrades and fixes that had been uh, left aside because of lack of funds, uh, either to our wastewater and water infrastructure or to public transit in terms of upgrading signals, getting uh, more uh, more buses and rail cars on the on the tracks, on the existing tracks, as a way of immediately getting people to work, both literally working on the cars, but getting people to work uh, more reliably from uh, from the suburbs to downtown. What happens to the general long-term rate of growth in Canada? When you look at the Western world at the moment, everyone's sort of struggling with this. There is at least the suspicion that we suffer from secular stagnation or any of those sort of ideas. What You've talked a lot about innovation. What are the ideas you've got that will make Canada you know, out, outdo that? Well, I think one of the things that, that is at the root of the worries or anxiety that so many people have is that you know they see their jobs being replaced by automation by AI by robots by uh, various various innovations and improvements in um, in the technology that surrounds our workplaces and instead of you know, saying, okay, well, how do we slow down the pace of automation and protect um, through various barriers uh, our workforce, Uh, 
what we've chosen to do, and it was at the center of the most recent budget mm. we put forward uh, a month ago, uh, was how do we prepare citizens, our workers, to be uh, part of the revolution in, in, in how our workplace functions. So uh, how are we both uh, encouraging uh, K to 12 students uh, to learn how to code? How are we uh, encouraging access to university, to career colleges, to technical and vocational schools uh, for our students that they are able to access that, but also how do we take people who are in the workforce already who are looking at their industry saying, wow, I need to change my industry or I need to get significantly more skills if I'm going to continue to have a job 10 years from now, uh, and get them back into school. So we put an awful lot of money that is focused on retraining and upskilling uh, workers so that they can be part of the changes that are coming. Is there, is there a country you see as a model in that? I, I ask it because virtually every leader around the world is beginning to grapple with this. Obama talked about it a great deal before he, he left. And all the Europeans are looking at this too, the prospect of there not being jobs in the future. Who, who, which country do you think is furthest ahead on that, apart, I think, apart from Canada? Uh, well, I think we can, we can draw on lessons and snippets from, from a number of places. But, uh, but I think Canada, as you, as you point out, uh, is already well down this path. And we have uh, some of the highest rates of post-secondary education in our workforce of, of any country. Uh, we have tremendous investments in, in, uh, in you know, research universities and institutions that uh, make us a place that Silicon Valley loves to come and poach from, uh, you know, part, of, part of our advantage is being able to draw in uh, the best and the brightest from around the world and create stimulating creative environments for our STEM graduates themselves to, to benefit and grow in. Uh, that's why we're looking at improving our, our capacity to draw in global talent more rapidly so companies looking to invest and open up shops here uh, can bring their top people to train up uh, some, of our, uh, some of our great do, graduates. Do you think Donald Trump's stance on immigration and things like that is actually a, a bonus for you on that? I think there might be some people, but as I said many times you know, when people asked whether Canada would be flooded by immigrants uh, uh, fleeing uh, a, a, a Trump victory, uh, you know, that happens every electoral cycle. Uh, people say, oh, if this person wins, I'm moving to Canada, and nobody ends up actually moving much. Uh, either way, we keep They must have gone the opposite way when you, when you were elected. <laughs> Uh, maybe some, uh, but you know the the idea that you know we can emphasize certain things that are Canada's comparative advantage. I mean, we do better with diversity than most countries in the world, and a lot of businesses are beginning to understand that the capacity to have uh, diversity on your board or in your on your on your shop floor, whether it's uh, a gender balance or whether it's just a lot of different backgrounds coming together to solve uh, challenging problems creates uh, better growth, better solution, better innovation. You don't think looking a long way forward, not, maybe not next year, but at some point governments like yours or maybe your successors or, or 10 years away or at some point governments are going to have to start creating almost make-believe jobs in order to keep people employed who you can't do otherwise, who, who are being pushed out by automation. 
I think that's, that's, that's a question a lot of folks are struggling with. But you know, I think what we saw every time there was a, a big transformation, whether it was the Industrial Revolution and the steam engine, and there was all this worry that you know, there were going to be no more jobs. And every transformation, yes, put uh, a number always, of people. There's always a delay, though, isn't it? Each time mm -hmm. the jobs do come, but it, sometimes it's 10, 20 years before they do. But I think at the same time, looking at a delay that might have happened 100 years ago or 200 years ago uh, is different from understanding that the pace of change is so rapid that if we start and we focus on, I mean, I'm not saying there's not going to be disruption. Of course, there'll be challenges. And we know that as, as the workforce changes. But as we tool up our workforce to be more flexible, more uh, open, more uh, skilled in you know, seeing where the, the opportunities are, um, we're going to be better positioned than anyone else in the world to, to draw on that. Can I push you on the, the housing, which seems to be, A, a big topic here, but B, also ties into this debate. Um, we're in Toronto. Here, house prices have gone up almost by a third over the past year. We've got huge growth in, in Vancouver as well. And today, the Ontario government announced a, a tax, 15% tax on foreigners coming to buy houses here. I suppose I have two questions for you. One, is this a, is this a bubble and is this the way to fix it? And the other one is, surely as a liberal, what's wrong with someone like me coming here to buy a house? I, I, uh, I encourage you to come and move and to Canada and settle and, and, and spend all your money and invest and hire more people. I mean, we are open to global investment. Uh, I think one of the one of the challenges we are facing, and we certainly you saw can't, it you can't a, a year ago. So you're open to global investment on one hand, and then charge people fifteen percent if they want to buy a house. Well, it, it depends whether it's speculation or whether yeah. it's it's living to move. And and one of the things, you know, moving in to live, uh, the the challenge that we're facing in is one of of, and we saw this more more acutely uh, uh, a year ago in Vancouver, uh, a dearth of data uh, on exactly who's doing what and what's doing. What and one of the things people were calling on the federal government to do is, you know, federal government needs to do something. We did a number of things around tightening some of the mortgage rules, uh, but I think there's a recognition that the levers that the federal government has cover the entire country, and uh, the housing market in Vancouver or Toronto is somewhat different than that in Halifax or Saskatoon or, 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 or even would Montreal. You, but do you see the housing markets in Toronto, the housing market in Toronto, say as a bubble? Yeah, I mean, it looks like one from the outside. I think we're 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 looking at at a time of of um, pressures on housing that need to be alleviated, which is why uh, we, instead of reacting in a short term level, are reacting for a, with a long term ten year housing strategy that's going to build more rental units, going to build more affordable housing. The federal government's investing uh, over eleven billion dollars, uh, and we're going to work with cities to create a stability there. Uh, that uh, that I think people need. People need to be able to afford their homes in the cities that they work. But which bit worries you most? The idea of this bubble suddenly popping and there being problems that way, or of it continuing to go along and maybe pushing ever more houses out of the reach of the affordability of people? I think... I, I, yeah. I'll let the housing speculators and experts make determinations around that. My focus is on making sure that for the medium and long term, uh, people in Toronto and across the country can afford their homes. And that means uh, working on the supply side, making sure that we're investing in uh, more rental stock, making sure that we're investing in new constructions of affordable housing so that uh, the market can adjust itself without, uh, without either popping or, uh, or crashing. 
What worries you most in the Canadian economy at the moment? What's, what's your biggest thing as you, as you go to sleep and think about it? Um, a lot of it is around uh, confidence uh, versus anxiety. Uh, if, uh, as we've seen, people continue to sense that their kids aren't going to have the kinds of opportunities and quality of life that they were able to inherit from their parents, uh, a sense of unfairness in the economy, a sense of lack of, of uh, uh, progress or upward mobility, uh, then we get an openness to um, extreme measures and lashing out. And that's where I think the, the, the responsibility of, of our government is to demonstrate that we are hearing those, those and, allay, and allaying those fears. So that's where the Canada Child Benefit came in last year, where we gave more money to 9 out of 10 Canadian families uh, every month, the cost of raising their kids, by not sending that to the wealthiest families. Uh, we're able to do a little more on that. Um, we lowered taxes for the middle class by raising them a little bit on the wealthiest 1%. Uh, and we strengthened the Canada Pension Plan for, for a generation, and it's going to act actually for future generations, where young people who are entering the workforce now, because of what we did on strengthening the CPP, um, you know, can be more confident in having retirement at the end of their, their, uh, their work career in, in decades. This particular budget uh, was very much focused on concrete measures to give people the tools uh, to be part and to feel included in the future economy, whether it's innovation or skills training and, and uh, education. These are the kinds of things that people look at and say, okay, yes, the world is changing, but our government and our society is adapting in ways that gives me confidence we're going to be able to be part of it. And do you think that Canada has moved away from that resource curse? Because I'm sure if I'd asked one of your predecessors, maybe your father, he would have said, look, the, one of the biggest worries we have is that we are so linked to natural resources. Is that, is that now the Canada of the past? Canada will always have a tremendous amount of its wealth based uh, and its year-over-year you know, -year, uh, benefits based on natural resources. We're a country with great natural resources that the world uh, will continue to need, and that's a good thing. But what we've actually discovered uh, is that how we draw on those natural resources has required and has engaged uh, more and more innovative technologies, more and more creative thinking, more and more solutions that aren't just good for here but for around the world. How to uh, continue to draw on the oil sands in an ever uh, more responsible and efficient way. How to uh, look at uh, better agricultural and food production in a place where our winters are, 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 are strong and our seasons are short, being more innovative about how we, how we create uh, productivity gains in our, our agri-food industry. These are the kinds of things that actually show that a natural resource economy can be blended with a knowledge economy, a, a human capital economy. And fundamentally of, of all the great resources we have, the greatest will always be Canadians ourselves. And that's why investing in education, in training, in opportunities for ambitious Canadians to succeed and for uh, people coming from around the world who want to build a better life for themselves and their family will also be able to succeed and contribute to our country. You mentioned confidence, anxiety and um, agricultural innovation. Um, today I, I notice also a pot holiday. This is... Um 
You've made these steps towards legalizing marijuana. Um, you're pushing that forward next year. Um, and it may be in place by the summer of 2018. Uh, one thing I've noticed in all these, is the government going to make money out of this? Is this going to be something you tax? It's the one bit which isn't very clear to me. Well, it's not very clear to you because we haven't focused on that. Um, The reason we are choosing to legalize uh, and control marijuana is because the current system is not protecting our kids. It's right now easier for an underage Canadian, a teenager, to uh, buy a joint uh, than it is for them to get their hands on a bottle of beer. And you know, whatever you may think about the relative harms of marijuana versus, uh, versus uh, alcohol or cigarettes, uh, marijuana is not good for the developing brain. It's not good for our kids. We need to do a better job of making it more difficult, at least as difficult as it is to access alcohol, uh, as, uh, uh, as it can be. And that's, that's the, the main part of, of our legalization strategy, along with recognizing uh, that criminal organizations and street gangs are making billions of dollars every single year off of the sale of marijuana, which they then funnel into other criminal activities. So you put those two things together, you realize we have a system that isn't working. Uh, can we change it? Can we uh, make it more difficult for young people to access marijuana? Can we uh, put the sale of marijuana through at least a regulated and, and, and overseen um, frame that the government will put forward to make sure there's quality control, make sure uh, that, that the profits aren't, uh, aren't uh, going into illicit corners, and yes, uh, draw on tax revenues that can then be put into public education campaigns, uh, you know, uh, better, better advocacy, better work uh, in mental health and, and uh, addiction services for, for all drugs. Those are the kinds of things that we see as a logical step forward. So the lens we're taking, yes, there, was, there will more like, most likely be plenty of economic activity and, and, and profits. Do you have any idea about it. what sort of industry may emerge? What seems to be happening in America is maybe a consolidation around a few big companies might happen. I think, you know, and, and again, we're at the very beginning of, of some thoughtful conversations with the provinces, uh, some, um, something that, quite frankly, the world is looking at to see uh, what, um, you know, what Canada does and how we do it. But I think you know, if, if you look to um, alcohol as a model, you have you know, big global players in beer uh, in Canada, but you also have a lot of microbreweries. And there's, there's that capacity and consumer choice if you want to you know, choose you know, what, what you want. There are options out there. And I think uh, ensuring that there is a range of business opportunities for small local uh, producers and larger producers uh, is not an unreasonable vision for, uh, for what that industry could look like. But again, we're looking at it from a public health and safety standpoint as opposed to some other places that legalized it on a commercial basis. That will come later. We're going to get public health and safety and on, right And first. on the public health thing, you, you are satisfied that despite all this evidence that there are now stronger, more industrial strengths of marijuana out there, that that is, that is something that will be better under a legal system that it will under an illegal one? Well, I think when you don't know what's in what you're buying from a 
pusher in a stairwell or a, or a, or a criminal organization. Uh, I think with uh, Health Canada properly regulating everything from THC levels to, uh, to use of pesticides, um, people will have a lot better idea of what it is they're, they're, they're choosing to buy if they make that choice. Can I ask you quickly about immigration? You mentioned it a bit in the context of America. Um, this, this prospect of you, you seem to be a champion of immigration, but you've also been happy for there to be caps on it and, and, and along those lines. Where do, you, where, where do you stand on that, things like Syrian refugees? And is that going to be something you're going to welcome ever more, or is it something where you have ideas of limits? There are 60 million uh, plus uh, refugees around the world uh, right now. Um, lots of countries can do more and will be doing more, but uh, there are a lot of things that need to be done internationally to allow people to return home uh, rather than just say the solution is to welcome in everyone because you know, Canada can't take in 60 million people, uh, obviously. Um, one of the things that is extraordinary about Canada is that we've uh, managed to keep a tremendously strong public support for immigration. Uh, and uh, that has happened over generations, whether it was welcoming uh, Ismaili refugees from uh, uh, East Africa in the early 70s, whether it was the Vietnamese boat people uh, uh, in, uh, in the early 80s, whether it was you know, successive waves uh, of, of refugees fleeing from Eastern Europe and Kosovo and elsewhere. There has been a story of success for immigrants and refugees coming to Canada where, um, you know, within a few years they uh, get integrated, they get good jobs, their kids become, you know, fully Canadian while still pride of their own culture. And Canadians know that that path works. And the limit we have on how many people we can bring in is related not to some arbitrary number, but how well can we support the newcomers and integrate them effectively and quickly? And if we do a good job you know, of, of making sure that there's a path to success for people who come here, then public support will continue for immigration. And what's different about Canada in that you look at America, you look at Britain, they were both, at least statistically, fantastic examples of immigrant success stories, and yet they've both elected or supported things, people who have been more, less, less pro-immigrant, if I could put it that way. I think it it uh, it comes down to identity and values. Uh, Canada is a country that uh, has always uh, accepted, um, you know, from the very beginning, English versus French, uh, that someone different from you was just as much and just as legitimately a Canadian as you were. So we've managed to make of this pluralism uh, the core of our national identity in that we share values of openness, uh, compassion, willingness to work hard, uh, quality, opportunity, desire to be there for each other uh, that actually defines us rather than a shared history or language or superficial identity that we all have to uh, ascribe to. Uh, and that combined with uh, a sense that Success also includes your neighbor, that when your neighbor is doing well, you're likely to do well, and it's not a zero-sum game, uh, is part of, I think, the Canadian psyche. We just look at foreign policy through that lens. I mean, again, you have been something of a liberal internationalist. You, you, you know, but when you look at problems like, say, North Korea, just to use that as an example, is that, is that one which is 
it, where this sort of, um, I suppose, altruism just brings you nothing, the North Korea is a problem which is very difficult to solve. Do, do you have any views on that? Well, I think where one is going to solve a problem like North Korea or Syria, which is also very much in the news these days, there's an understanding that um, working uh, across international borders, working with various stakeholders, different countries with different views who um, need to be part of the solution moving forward, whether it's uh, China around North Korea, whether it's Russia and Iran around Syria, uh, we need to make sure that the international community is, is working in, in a cohesive way. And that's where being a bit of an internationalist, being able to engage constructively with a broad range of, of actors across ideologies and, and forms of government um, is is important. Do you worry about a West which is turning in on itself? If you look at most of the other bits of the West, they are less inclined to get involved in these problems than, than you are. My, my focus is very much on what Canada can and should do uh, and how we can be helpful uh, at bringing people together, at, at applying pressure where it's needed, at uh, creating uh, a, a coherent international approach where possible. Um, this is this is what I'll work on, um, and engage in in whatever way works with with various allies of of different uh, ideologies. Where, where does China fit into that? It's it's interesting to me that whilst you've been fairly outspoken in, on behalf of free trade and globalization, the one person who seems to have said more is Xi Jinping. Um, it, it seems an odd ally for you to end up with. But. Well, I think you know, I mean, one of the examples of where China has played a very positive role is around climate change, where they have recognized a, a need for real leadership there and uh, have stepped up, stepped up uh, in, in a number of ways and uh, showed themselves to be um, on side with, with a lot of uh, international uh, players on how we're going to uh, uh, fix the environment or improve the environment for, for the long term around the world. Do you think there's a possibility of a free trade deal? What, how, how would that work? We're certainly sitting down with China to, uh, to explore those possibilities. There's a number of, uh, a number of you know, challenges, not least of all is the difference in scale between our economies. Uh, but also challenges around values and approaches and, and uh, um, you know, a recognition of, of the um, expectations that Canadians have around labor rights and health rights and environmental protections that aren't necessarily uh, quite aligned with, uh, with where China is, for example, or where many developing countries are. You mentioned um, climate change and all those things. Surely the answer to all those lies in countries like China and India nowadays... And is that going to? Is that something that you're trying to concentrate on, as well as delivering a carbon tax? Oh, certainly. Uh, how we how we create uh, innovative solutions that countries like China and India are going to be interesting in in purchasing and partnering in and developing a solution so they can leapfrog over some of the. Uh, some of the steps that uh, developed countries had to go through where there was uh, um, behavior that, that shouldn't be repl replicated on a global scale if we're going to make our 2-degree our uh, uh, target or 1.5-degree target even. Are you happy with China, the idea of uh, almost as a co-equal global leader with, with America, or do you still see America as being the one in the front? Uh, you know, I think... I, I, I think rather than trying to make grand pronouncements, we look at, uh, at what we can do to um, 
bring people along and bring ourselves along in constructive ways? Are there, are there <clears throat> ways to uh, improve um, you know, Chinese um, labor laws and behaviors through better engagement with Canada? Now, that's what we're going to work on. Are there ways of, of demonstrating um, to this new administration in the, in the States uh, that uh, being climate leaders is actually really good for uh, jobs and for the economic bottom line? Um, you know, that's what we'll do. Are there ways of uh, highlighting to Europe that um, you know, openness to, uh, to continued trade through uh, our, our CETA agreement is, uh, is a good thing. These are all ongoing conversations that Canada's glad to engage with the world on. And quite frankly, the, as we engage with the world and highlight what we have going on here, I think uh, a lot of people in those areas and elsewhere uh, are you know, looking to invest in Canada. We've had a number of Big companies come and say, uh, you know what, we want to be part of, of, of what Canada's doing. Your emphasis on, on education, on training, on uh, responsible economic development, on, on sustainable growth. These are the kinds of things uh, that in a world of tremendous uncertainty uh, seem to be on a, on a long-term path uh, that is interesting for a lot of investors. And that's, uh, that's very much the, the message that we're putting out to the world. We began this conversation by talking about NAFTA and the things around that. You have the obvious sort of third party in NAFTA, which is Mexico. If part of the emerging world you've just lauded, when if America pulls out of NAFTA, is, is that an area where Mexico and Canada could begin to go it alone? Oh, I think we're always going to look uh, through whatever structures exist on how we uh, create better opportunities to trade and to work with uh, our closest partners. And Mexico will always be a, a, an important and close partner for us. Uh, as we engage in NAFTA discussions, we'll, we'll see how, how it goes. But there's certainly uh, things on which uh, Canada and the U.S. are, are uniquely compatible, uh, other things in which... Uh, Canada and Mexico will be able to find uh, common ground and common approaches. Other things in which it'll be a, a, a U.S.-Mexico conversation. And that's, this is all natural for uh, moving forward in, in responsible, thoughtful ways. And do you think it's a legitimate subject to bring up NAFTA, the idea of redesigning it, or is it something that we should look at as fairly sacrosanct? I think NAFTA has been improved a dozen times over the past 20 years, and we're always looking for ways to, uh, to improve the benefits for, for all of our citizens. I mean, I think one of the things with Canada is, is you know, we're uh, of a modest enough size that uh, we never feel that the ideal outcome of any given deal is you know, we win and you lose. I mean, I think we're always looking for ways where uh, there is mutual benefit, and I think we've been able to demonstrate um, time and time again that trade can benefit both partners. But isn't, isn't that the point where you're the most anti-Trump? Is that A lot of the new president's rhetoric is exactly about I win, you lose, or vice versa. And a lot of it also, he does see it as a zero-sum game. And that well, is the fundamental difference between you. What we've been able to highlight to the new administration is that uh, with Canada, at the very least, it's not a zero-sum game. That uh, a lot of great jobs on both sides of the border depend on, on this great relationship and will continue to. And I think uh, that as a, as a way of moving forward and as a, as a lesson for us all and as an example to the world is uh, very much one of the things I'm trying to push. Thank you for listening to Debrief. I'm Megan Murphy. You can find me on Twitter at Megan Murp. 
Business Week is on Twitter at at BW. And Debrief is available on iTunes, the brand new Bloomberg app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time. Thank you.